Welcome to Bennett's Keep. I'm Daniel, and this is going to be a call-in episode. Uh, so these are call-ins that are all uh, based on other topics that we've talked about on the podcast over the last month or so, um, but aren't directly related to the uh, sword and sorcery chainmail uh, hack or game that I'm working on. I want to kind of keep that separate. Uh, so this is, if you're only interested in that kind of stuff, then this is maybe not for you, but if you're interested in a variety of talk about roleplay and other things, we've got some calls from Carl uh, Rodriguez from the Geomologist Presents podcast, and also from John, who has a regular call in here. He's got lots of uh, little bits of information and points and arguments and thoughts, and so there's a whole bunch of cool stuff uh, going on. If you guys are interested in just uh, general chat about roleplaying and uh, narrative and those kind of things, then... Uh, Buckle up and let's do it. Hey, Daniel, just catching up on some podcast. And uh, I, the favorite type of game I like to run is a zero to hero game. And that's in a way why I enjoy you know, BX type games a lot. I'd like to get more people to the table, but uh, my players are, you know, they've, they've, they've been there, done that in their mind, and they don't want to do it again. Not all of them. I mean, this OS... Uh, old school renaissance revival whatever you want to call it yeah has got made me learn of a community that enjoys these games still and i really enjoyed for example when i was running broken lands and these characters start off as you know teenage humanoids in a shitty shanty town in the broken lands in the known world using the orcs of thar and have risen to become warlords so i think it's uh, pretty cool that's not the, to say that you can't do that in other games. Um, I have run Adventure Pass and Starfinder where we have players who are just, you know, two-bit um, mine haulers or, you know, ship's crew on a mine hauler and then they save the universe, right? Um, it's kind of cool. And, and I love that progression. I love seeing... And that's why I like long-term campaigns where it says the short trips or even these you know I, I like playing in a West Marches game and I've tried to run a good West Marches game with some OSR and I thought Broken Lands was really good um, and there, people have gotten to power because you have a group of consistent players but I think the drop in drop out is what bothers me it just slows down progression um, and you have different players who are, just aren't as savvy and I should probably clarify that savvy player skill whatever I think what happens in a group if you play together consistently like I was in a West Marches game maybe pre-pandemic probably and we had we had a group of guys who would regularly muster for the Tuesday game and we got really good and we're really gelling we knew each other's tactics and what we would do we had the marching order we knew what kind of henchmen we wanted uh, we do things quick lickety split with all the pre-procedural and then uh, we got out there and I feel like I feel like the GM got annoyed with that he got he kept he actually I think what broke that is the GM introduced a player who wasn't part of that group and truth be told he fucked everything up so I don't know um, I love that I love players gelling together and knowing what they're going to think I see that in my Warhammer Fantasy 4th edition group and it's fucking cool. I'm going to repeat it. Fucking cool. Because you see not just their level progression, but their progression as a group and how they gel together. 
And that's really one of the things I loved about running that adventure path in Starfinder and running like any, like I ran the Terror of, Terror of Talibheim saga for Warhammer. And it was true, like by the end, it's like, we know what we're gonna do. We know where we're gonna be. We know what capabilities each other have and we're gonna optimize our play to reflect that. And I think that is a, that is a cool satisfaction to have as a GM. Um, I guess it would be as a player. I'm assuming it would be. I'd love to have a group of guys that I play with that, uh, yeah, we know what our capability is of and how we're going to tackle this uh, next big thing. So uh, cool stuff, Daniel. I'm going to keep listening, and you're probably going to get a shit ton of messages from me because I'm like a month behind you. I apologize. Yeah, I'm definitely with you. I I love the Zero to Hero. I love the build up. The uh, the kind of you feel like you can you, you earned it, if you will. I mean. I don't know if that's the right word because um and yeah and, and i think that the idea of like once you've kind of played through the the zero to hero thing a, a few times and you're kind of into it but then maybe you want to change it up a bit and you want to play something high level then it's cool just to start at high level because I, I do feel like maybe i'm a little different because i like to gm way more than i like to play so for me i don't necessarily want to play a character for two years so i'd rather do like you know, first level character, you know, up to maybe like fourth level in, in the course of a, a longish campaign and then retire that character. And then if I want to play something high level, just start off at like seventh level or something and, uh, and play that way for a few. Although typically in those games, I'd rather not play a whole campaign. I'd rather just play like, um, you know, a couple of sessions because I don't know. I feel like high level play is just not my thing as far as a player. I don't mind it as a DM. I, I, I kind of like the intrigue stuff that gets added at higher levels, but as a player, it's not really my thing. Um, I mean, I don't really like it as a DM either, to be honest with you. I don't dislike it, but I think most people, most people, I hear, maybe it's just, <laughs> we're in a sounding board, right? So many people say that they like levels, you know, like something around like fourth to seventh level is like a sweet spot for like your old school style D&D. &D. And I think that's pretty accurate. Um, you're powerful enough that you can kick some major butt, but you're not so powerful that it kind of becomes a little bit weird. Like, um, well, you know, it's interesting. This is a total side note. <laughs> when I ran my long-term 5e campaign, one of the, the plot points was that this like cult was uh, ki kidnapping all the high-level, basically, casters and stuff. So that, And this happened while the players were pretty low-level. So when they became higher-level casters, they were like the only high-level people around. So like, it really, I think that changed the vibe because I feel like in the D&D &D world where you think about all these characters going up in level and stuff, and especially what they did later in some of the modules, like even the AD&D modules, where it's like you go into the bar and like the barkeep is like a retired six-level ranger. It's like, really? <laughs> it's like you made it to six-level and ranger with like a million gold pieces and you're a barkeep? Like, I, I don't know. It just was weird to me. But I guess they did that to keep the challenge up, right? Because they didn't want uh, murder hobos to just come into every town and slaughter all the, the civilians. See, in, in my world, I try to try to keep it grounded so that most of the people you encounter are going to be these zero level humans. So yeah, I mean, if you're like a third level character, you are, you could probably, you know, a party could wipe a town out if they were evil, but uh, I don't go with evil parties. That's not going to happen, but they could, you know, it also justifies the heroes being in the world, right? If the barkeep is a six level ranger, why do they need this party of adventurers to go stop the orc raids? I mean, it's like the, the town is full of high level adventures. So yeah, I feel like having too many high-level adventurers in the world creates a bizarre um, situation where, you know, it's like there can be only one, right? It's like, it just feels weird to me. So that, I think that's maybe why high-level starts to get weird to me. It's like if the players got their, um, 
shouldn't there be other people there too? And if there are, then, huh? So anyways, thanks for calling me. Hey, Daniel, in your metal reference, maybe you're part cat, because cats seem to like the discordant uh, guttural iterations of metal, and it puts them to sleep, and they start purring. So maybe you're part cat. Maybe you're cat folk. Hmm. You have long hair? I don't know. Do cat folk have long hair? No, they're more like furry, right? But, uh, I mean, I don't, I don't see why they're exclusive, right? I think the only, I like most music genres. I think the only music I don't like is country, but only like the rockified country that's more new. I really like older country, like Johnny Cash era, Loretta Lynn era, you know, uh, Hank Williams Jr. era, Charlie Daniels. Uh, but I don't like the newer stuff. Where I mean, I'll even like, you know, that dude Garth Brooks with the Thunder... No, no, he's not Thunder Rolls. I don't know who those guys are. Anyway, yeah, about that time, I kind of lost interest because it's all the fucking same. Yeah, I'm with you. I also like to listen to a lot of genres of music. Um, it's funny, especially I find that when you like a certain genre of music, this has been my personal taste, and then it kind of has a, a shift, you tend to move away from it. <laughs> Which is interesting. I only say because like the country thing, right? Like, like there, there's a distinct shift in the music between like your your Johnny Cash's and your Charlie Daniels band and stuff like that to what I would consider more like rock kind of modern uh, <laughs> country. I don't know what the right word for it is, but you can also think about that in rock and roll music, right? I think that like there's these shifts where they start bringing in different uh, types of sounds, and if people are very set in their um, their ways because they like something and it changes sometimes that doesn't uh, appeal to them as much so you know like if you were listening to uh rock and roll that was all you know guitars and, and bass and drums and then all of a sudden you know more electronic stuff comes in there's, there's a chance you might not like that because it's just very different so yeah i'm, I'm with you there and i am definitely a cat hey daniel i have a question for you since you play a lot of I guess you play a lot of D&D 5e. It seems like you play BX and 5e. So I ran into a situation, and I guess it was just prompted by what you're talking about, about playing your character dumb or not. But, you know, if they have a 7 intelligence or whatever. But I ran into a situation where a group of 5e players got stumped in one of the adventures, a published adventure, because it became all puzzles, and they did not know how to solve the puzzles. And in fact, one of the players got killed by a trap. And he was like, so I, I feel like that basically blew up the, the game because this player said, oh, well, I guess I, he felt that like I was out to get him when he failed to solve the trap and uh, decided he didn't want to play in that group anymore. But I don't know. I, I think there still is, even in the 5e game, you got to have some skill as a player versus skill on your character sheet. Hey, Daniel, I have a question for you since you play a lot of I guess you play a lot of D&D 5e. It seems like you play BX and 5e. So I ran into a situation, and I guess it was just prompted by what you're talking about, about playing your character dumb or not. But, you know, if they have a 7 intelligence or whatever. But I ran into a situation where a group of 5e players got stumped in one of the adventures, a published adventure, because it became all puzzles, and they did not know how to solve the puzzles. And in fact, one of the players got killed by a trap. And he was like, so I, I feel like that basically blew up the, the game because this player said, oh, well, I guess I, he felt that like I was out to get him when he failed to solve the trap and uh, decided he didn't want to play in that group anymore. But I don't know. I, I think there still is, 
in, even in the 5e game, you got to have some skill as a player versus skill on your character sheet. Yeah, so this is really interesting. I agree. I think that, first of all, I'll start off by saying I agree with that. I think that you need to have or should have, or it's good to have, <laughs> player skill even in games where they have, you know, let's say ability scores are more important. Like, let's say, in the, for example, 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Um, in a situation, I think, like you're describing, I would likely allow them to do some kind of a check to give them a hint. I probably wouldn't let them just solve it with a check because I think that's not the vibe of the game that I'm playing. But I, I also, hopefully, <laughs> the players at my table understand that. Um, so, like, for instance, if the, uh, you know, if they needed to do a certain order with the numbers or whatever, I might say, uh, I might have the cleric roll a religion check if they're inside some kind of temple. And then say, well, you know that uh, you're, as you're looking at this, you remember that, you know, prime numbers were really important for the, the this this cult, right? And then that might give them a hint, like, oh, we have to use the prime numbers, or, you know, whatever. I mean, I don't know what the puzzle was. That's generally my vibe. And the reason why I do that is I think there's a slightly different mindset between, and again, this isn't necessarily the case that it was people who played back then versus whatever. I mean, I'm not saying that. I'm talking about what the play styles that are often called old school versus new school. The, the different mindset is that if you are playing in the, quote, old school style, like a Mega Dungeon, and you come to a puzzle you can't get through, a lot of players in that style would be fine with going, okay, We'll take information. We'll take a rubbing of the wall. We'll do this. We'll write, make some notes. We're going to go to a sage in town and look it up and come back. But for now, let's go to a different door. You know, whereas a new school style, there's an expectation oftentimes that they should be able to get through. So they will wind up banging their head against the wall. And that can just cause frustration at the table, right, with certain kinds of players. So in that case, sometimes it's nice to be able to say, okay, roll some dice. Because at least that kind of breaks that like tension where they're like getting a little frustrated, and hopefully that helps them. Um, you know, because ultimately you want the players to succeed, right? But but I do think that they will over time foster um, player skill if if they if they're allowed to do it. If you if you just they just show up at the puzzle and they go, well, they want to make an intelligence check, um, then I might even say something like, well, listen, you will get one intelligence check per puzzle, so get as far as you can. And then make your check because I'm going to give you a clue based on what you know so far or what you figured out. So if they just ask for it right away, I'll give them some kind of generic clue. Whereas if they're halfway through the puzzle and they get stuck, they'll get a much better clue because they're halfway through the puzzle. And again, this is something that needs to be discussed with people like kind of outside a game. I mean, I'm not the kind of person that is afraid of stopping the game in a sense, as people say, because I don't believe in true immersion uh, anyways. So I don't mind going out of character in the game as the DM and just saying to the players, this is what I'm going to do mechanically. Because I just think that makes things... When things are on the table, I think it uh, removes frustration. So anyways, that's just the way I do it. Uh, whether or not that's good or bad, I mean, I haven't been lynched by players yet. But, you know, there's still time. One of your previous podcasts, the simple rule came up again a couple of times. And that, of course, is we don't need a rule for that. Just roleplay it. And that, of course, is exactly true in every situation. We don't need any rules. Just roleplay it. We can run sessions like they do in Fiasco, which has no rules. It's just a series of prompts for the participants to create a shared narrative. The only problem is, of course, that they also have to have a way of negotiating a shared worldview so that that narrative doesn't fragment and split apart. But there are some reasons for rules. The most basic level rules allow 
groups in different places to have some kind of consistency. I know that I can find a group playing 5e somewhere in the world and will at least have some kind of baseline for how the game goes. The other thing is rules encourage consistency between sessions and even just between rulings. There's nothing worse than having a GM who decides one way one day and something else completely different the next. But the most important aspect of rules is that they encourage players to play a certain way, as your ranger example elegantly showed. Rules shouldn't be looked at as some arbitrary way of directing play. They exist to mediate between what a player wants to accomplish and how his character can actually act in that game world. You can't divorce the rules from the world that you're creating. Oh yeah, I 100% agree that you need rules for consistency. And, and I think the difference between, I mean, I'm not sure maybe I'm understanding you correctly, between maybe our stances is that when I say you don't need a rule for that, what I generally mean is that there is a rule already in the system that can be used to base a ruling off of. If you notice, generally, when I talk about any kind of house rulings or whatever, whenever I talk about these things, I usually go back to something that exists. Like if I'm using BX as my framework, I might look at uh, the reaction role mechanic uh, and use that for something, right? Uh, I might use the uh, I might use the initiative mechanic or the surprise mechanic. I might use the cover mechanic. Uh, all these things I might use. Um, in order to accomplish basically a goal that exists. I try not to break things, make things up whole cloth because I feel like they fit better in the system when you do that. So wh when I say that, I mean stuff like, okay, BX does not say that you cannot shoot a, a missile weapon in, into a melee, right? However, if you want to have some kind of a rule there, a lot of times people will say things like, well, if you roll a one, you're gonna hit your, uh, your, your friendly. But the reality is, is that that's coming whole cloth from nowhere, right? So to me, that's not really an effective rule. Instead, what I do is I say to them, well, you've got two of your friends on top of this person. That is giving the person uh, half cover. Half cover provides an armor class bonus of whatever, off the top of my head, I, can't, I think it's plus two. So if you miss by two, that effectively you are hitting the cover, which means that you hit a friendly. Now I'm using a rule that's in the system to make a ruling. And to me, that seems to work better. That, that's just generally how I do it. Um, it's not always possible, clearly. And, and yeah, but and see, in this way, I can actually say, if you're used to playing BX, and again, we're, we're half a world away, and I say, well, I use the cover rules uh, to cover this, and I kind of explain that. If you understand what the cover rules are, you get that. I don't need to make it up whole cloth. It's not some random, uh, uh, a one you hit a friendly, because, I mean, a, a one does automatically miss, but... A one you hit a friendly is just a rule that comes from modern games with critical fails. And that doesn't fit in my mind with a, with a BX system at all. So I don't use that. So I think you're 100% right that rules are necessary. Rules are the tools we use. So we're all using, so we all imagine the same world. But I also think that too many rules can limit us. And you're going to kind of say something like that in your next message. And then I'll reply to that. Well, there's obviously still a misunderstanding about the way the skirmish systems work in many games, including 5e, and the problems 
that those systems usually have. The main problem is that those systems are proscriptive. They tell you what you can do, and that is all you can do. You're not allowed to do anything else. And that, of course, ensures consistency among groups, etc. But it also limits your uh, role-playing experience quite significantly. But there's no reason you can't follow the precept of rules versus rulings versus rules, <laughs> uh, even when you're in the middle of combat. The rules, the skirmish rules, exist as a guideline and a framework, but that doesn't mean you can't expand on them and operate outside of them. See, I'm going to disagree with your idea that if it doesn't say you can do it in combat, you can't do it, especially in a more simple game. The simpler the game is, the more open-ended it is. You may say, well, nobody's going to think to do that, but, you know, as a DM, what I do is I show them you can do those things by having the enemy do it. I mean, there's ways we can do it, or you can have an out-of-chat out of, uh, conversation. The thing is, is that if you use a more modern game, let's say 5e as an example, uh, they specifically said when they were, did the Unearthed Arcana, where they were talking about how you can make your own feats and stuff, they say, make sure that nothing that you make a feat of uh, is something that will prevent somebody else from doing something they should be able to do. So in other words, if you make a feat for somebody that's called a disarm feat that allows people to disarm, that then stops all other people without that feat from disarming, which is why that's a bad feat. So I think the more complex your system is, the more rules you add to it, the more likely you are to find uh, ways to stop people from just being creative with how they role play. If you just say you're attacking with a melee weapon or attacking with a ranged weapon, that is a much different thing because a melee weapon could be anything, right? Or, or attacking um, with melee, you don't even use the word uh, making a melee attack. You don't have to say even say uh, weapon, right? I could use a bench. There's nothing to stop me from using a bench to hit somebody in BX. I did it when I was 10 years old when we played the game and I do it as an adult. I don't think that it need, nobody needed to tell me that I could use a bench, <laughs> you know, common sense did. And I think that as soon as you have a feat or a rule that says whether or not you can use a bench, now all of a sudden it becomes more complicated. So I think that's real where we're having too many rules uh, is a problem, but I do think you need a baseline, right? Um, you know, for instance, fifth edition of Dungeons and Dragons kind of ruins fights like that in the way that they handle uh, using non-weapons, right? I forget what they call it, uh, a non-weapon thing. Like if you were gonna use like a stick or pick up a bench because that becomes improvised weapon is what they call it. Unless you have the feat that gives you proficiency in improvised weapons, you essentially are taking a penalty because everybody is assuming a proficiency bonus when they're attacking with something. So I'm not gonna pick up the bench and attack somebody because I'm gonna have a subtraction to my attack roll when I do it. Whereas I feel like in a simpler game like BX, there's no minus to the attack roll. The DM would just determine what kind of damage the bench does, and boom, you're done. And that, of course, ties into the idea of using maps, which are a big part of uh, contemporary skirmish games. Maps give a framework for an encounter, not to limit players. They should be used to encourage players to come up with novel and interesting ways of approaching that combat. Look at Runehammer's early videos where he was talking about encounter design using very minimalist uh, setups. It, they're just brilliant. They, he designs them specifically to encourage players to think for themselves and to think of novel and interesting solutions. So he uses them as a framework for expanding on role-playing, not limiting it. 
Well, since uh, those systems that I mentioned popped up again, there are still some misunderstanding about those as well. ICRPG very definitely comes from a video game perspective because Runehammer is a video game artist. And it's not my favorite style of play, but it's brilliantly done. And especially for one-shots, it would be something I might consider with a few tweaks. If you want something more realistic from him, look at Blood and Snow. It's literally, I think, it uses the ICRPG system, but in a very realistic world. And I think it's one of the most brilliant role-playing setting system combination that's ever been written. While we're on the subject of rules and how they can encourage role-playing, I think everyone should look at Middle-Earth Adventures. It's the most brilliant example of taking the basic 5e framework and customizing it for a specific setting that has ever been created. It shows that 5e really is a great system when used appropriately. People forget that the basic 5e books are a cookbook. They show you a whole huge range of possibilities, but pretty much by definition you're not supposed to be using them all at once, otherwise you end up with this, this chaotic hodgepodge of things. But again, Middle-earth adventures, the best example of marrying a standard system to a specific setting that I've ever seen. See, I, I guess I see the map thing differently than you do. I don't need or I don't want a DM to tell me, okay, well, there's four logs on the ground. There's a rope over here. There's a bucket. There's this. If they just tell me we're in a, a farmer's shed, I will immediately as a player say, hey, is there this there? Is there a pitchfork? Can I pull down the, the rafters and knock the hay on top of them? Is there a trough over here with water? I'll just do that because in my mind, I see those things. And in my opinion, what I would consider a good GM will roll with that and be like, yeah, that's reasonable. That would be in a farmer's shed. Sure, there's a, there's a bucket here that you can grab and shove over the person's head to blind them. And that's how I play. And that's how you know I expect players to play. And maybe they need to be taught that. But I feel like there's that. My fear there is if you look at something like, again, I'm just going to keep going back to 5th edition because I think that's the one that most people understand. Maybe not who are listening to this. But 5e has these flaws and connections and this and that that you can roll for when you first start and backgrounds. And the thing is, is that those are meant to take a player and say, hey, here's some ideas. And there's even a spot right there in the 5e player's handbook that says, you can make up your own based on how you want your character to be. But guess what? Nobody does. Well, I shouldn't say nobody. Most people don't. What they do is they, they call for more and more books with more and more backgrounds and flaws and stuff so they can just pick them from a list. Because they're being taught the way you make a character is you pick from a list. So if I'm being taught the way I role play is to look at the things the GM says are in the room and those are the only things that are there, that's going to affect how I play. RCRPG, yeah, that makes sense. It's very video gamey. It's very tactical, whatever, how you want to say it. That's cool. I mean, again, I just don't see it being the thing I want to do. I don't want to go video game style. Maybe I do. I don't know. I don't play video games. So maybe what I'm suggesting is a video game. Um, Blood and Snow, I have. Hmm. God, it's been a long time since I read it. I'll go back and look at it, though. It, it sounds pretty cool. Um, is that the one that's, um, it's it's uh, prehistoric, I think, right? Blood and Snow. I could be completely off by the optical optical look. But uh, yeah, I'll check that out because... Yeah, I really like the stuff that Runehammer puts out. It's not really the style that I like to play, and definitely not the style that I like to play most of the time, I should say. And it's not the style, really, that I'm going for my sword and sorcery game, but it's awesome stuff that he puts out, though. 
While we're on the subject of rules and how they can encourage role-playing, I think everyone should look at Middle-Earth Adventures. It's the most brilliant example of taking the basic 5e framework and customizing it for a specific setting that has ever been created. It shows that 5e really is a great system when used appropriately. People forget that the basic 5e books are a cookbook. They show you a whole huge range of possibilities, but pretty much by definition you're not supposed to be using them all at once, otherwise you end up with this, this chaotic hodgepodge of things. But again, Middle Earth Adventures, the best example of marrying a standard system to a specific setting that I've ever seen. Well, I haven't seen Middle Earth Adventures, and nor do I intend to, because I'm not a huge Tolkien person. Sorry, everybody. Uh, nor am I a big D20 person. I will admit that 5e is a very good system in the sense that it's super simple. It's too simple for my taste. It's boring, in my opinion. It's always set a target number, roll over, which equal to a roll over, I suppose. That's just boring. That that I love different subsystems. I like uh, mini games, as I've said many times on this podcast. So for me, that's my problem with. I don't have a problem with people being dragonborns or whatever else people complain about with 5e. I think that's all fine and awesome, actually. But I will say that I just get bored with the D20 rollover for every uh, move. There were a couple of other messages from John, but the audio was kind of screwed up. Um, but he was talking about using uh, tools from Fiasco, which I'm not familiar with. So um, that's really interesting if you want to call in more about that, John, uh, because Fiasco apparently gives you more narrative tools versus just, the, the I guess, the structural tools of building the earth. I'm kind of paraphrasing what he said, um, which, you know, I, I don't disagree with that. I think if you're playing an OSR type, D&D type of game, right, there doesn't really give you a lot of tools for narrative or role play in the sense of people talking to each other. It just says you can do it, right? <laughs> it doesn't get you the tools. So I'm curious what these tools are. Maybe I'll take a peek at Fiasco. I've, I've heard of it, but it's not really my thing. It feels like a lot of people gather around telling a story, which is kind of what D&D is, but I like a little more structure, even though it doesn't seem that way sometimes. All right. Well, thank you to my callers. Uh, of course, anybody who's listening, and I guess you would have to be listening to hear this, but uh, <laughs> feel free to call in. I always like the calls. I am going to try to uh, move forward more focusing on the chainmail hack. Um, so I'll probably do a few episodes like this here and there where I get the calls about other things, but um, be sure to call in about whatever you like, and uh, we'll try to play the calls here and have a conversation. Thanks for listening.